Hi, Secular Mill listeners. Welcome back. For this episode, we are very happy and excited to have Dr. Hal Herzog, who is an emeritus professor of psychology at Western Carolina University. He is the author of the book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, and Some We Eat, which examines the complex interactions between humans and animals. Hal has been investigating the complex psychology of our interactions with other species for more than two decades. He is particularly interested in how people negotiate real-world ethical dilemmas, and he has studied animal activists, cockfighters, animal researchers, and circus animals trainers. He is an award-winning teacher and researcher. He has written more than 100 articles and book chapters, and his research has been published in journals such as Science, American Psychologist, the Journal of the Royal Science, the American Scholar, New Scientist, Anthrozoos, Bioscience, the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association, and Animal Behavior. His work has also been covered by Newsweek, Slate, Salon, National Public Radio, Scientific American, USA Today, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, and many others. In 2013, he was also given a Distinguished Scholar Award by the International Society of Anthrozoology. We had a great time recording this episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Psychodrama Podcast. This is your co-host, Katie. And this is your co-host, Leo. How's it going, Katie? Good. I'm excited to have our first return guest, Dr. Hal Hartzog, today. Hal, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing fine. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, I think we're going to start. If you ever have any other repeat, if, if any other guests are gracious enough to come back to our podcast, we'll start calling it a Herzog. Like, how many, how many Herzogs do they, do they obtain? Yeah, so we are excited to have you because you, you actually went ahead and did a second edition of your book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, and Some We Eat. So we are happy to have you here over to talk about that and more of the issues. So with that, do you mind maybe telling us a little bit about what your research area is about and your book? What made, what's the impetus for the second edition? Okay, yeah, my book is uh, called uh, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat. Why it's so hard to think straight about animals. And uh, I've basically been doing research in human-animal relationships, uh, mostly on the ethical side and sides of attitudes of human-animal relationships, other Mm -hmm. things as well really for almost 40 years. And it's been a a wonderful ride. It's been a lot of fun uh, doing this research and it's been very exciting. And one of the things that was really exciting was that, you know, I had this little obscure minor research area, you know, and and in the last 10 years, it's absolutely exploded. And so um, the number of papers, for example, I I did Google Scholar search today. And when I was writing the book in 2008, uh, that year, if you Google Scholar, you know, uh, research on human-animal interactions. There were 275 papers published that Just year. With those, with those terms, human-animal mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, human-animal interactions. And last year, there were 1,500 research papers. Oh, my god! So this, this field has absolutely exploded, and it gets yeah. a lot of attention in the press, and there's just a huge amount of interest. So one of the, the reasons I wrote this, I, I wrote a second edition of the book was in, in part to incorporate some of this new, some of this new, some of this new research, um, and really sort of you know share the, share the love, you know, <laughs> at least a field a field that that I that I, that I love. Can you can you maybe talk a little bit about um, you know what do we mean by human animal interactions and the ethical aspects of it. And then maybe we can talk a little about, uh, you know, what what have we learned in the, in the two editions since 2008 to now, what has- Yeah, um, the, 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 the technical name for the uh, field, there's, there's several different names. Some people call it a human, uh, uh, an, some people call it animal studies. Mm. Uh, the term that I use is the original term, uh, it's called anthrozoology. And in my view, uh, at least initially, anthrozoology was a really big tent. And so I'd go to the annual conferences and there would be, there'd be historians, there would be uh, uh, people from economics, there would be veterinarians, there would be uh, nurses, there would be people in social work, there would be uh, you know, psych- psych- psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists. And it was really fun to be in an area that had so many different perspectives. And, 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 and my, my reason I'm so, uh, interested in this area and have you know, kept my interest 
was because was I'm interested in human psychology. It's mm-hmm. it's not be, most people get in the field because they're interested. They love animals and they want to study. Uh, you know, okay, Carolyn's about the human part of that they are. I'm I'm not as interested in that as I am in what our interactions with animals tells us about uh, human psychology. And I'm absolutely convinced that animals play a role in almost every aspect of human life. We're talking about art, we're talking about literature, we're talking about psychopathology, we're talking about food, we're talking about everything. So so to me, this is sort of a, a microscope for looking at all kinds of interesting issues associated with what it means to be human, you know? What does this tell us about what it means to be human? I I appreciate you bringing up that aspect um, related to psychopathology and um, mental health, because one thing as a therapist that is not uncommon is for me to have requests from people about having an emotional support animal. And there are also interests sometimes in animal assisted therapy. And so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about some of the data on animal assisted therapy. And I think that this is, this can be a very emotional topic because of what you said, the human psychology wrapped around feelings about animals and mental health and all that. So what did the data say about that? Right. Well, let me, let me say first that uh, when, uh, you know, for most of my career, the one aspect of human-animal interactions that I was really not very interested in is, is uh, the interaction with people and pets and the impact of pets on, on human health. I, fe- I think my feeling was that there were already a lot of people doing that, and um, they didn't really need me, you know, to do that. And then when I wrote my book, I began writing it in, 19, in 2008. Uh, I had to have a chapter in it on, you know, human pet relationships, obviously. And so I started looking at the research on the so-called pet effect, that is the, the effect of pets have on human health and well-being, and also the research on animal-assisted therapy. And it, it's really, really quite fascinating. And I, I got really in, interested into it. So recently, I've been writing a lot. I write a blog for Psychology Today magazine, Animals and Us. And a lot of those those deal with the topic you're talking about. So let's, yeah, let's talk about uh, animal. Let's, let's, first of all, let's talk about emotional support animals. Um, if uh, people are asking you as a therapist to uh, that you want an emotional support animal to, to get on an airplane right now, you should just tell them no. And the reason for that is, is that airplane, airlines no longer recognize emotional support animals. And it used to be uh, up until up until last year, you could bring your emotional support rabbit, your emotional support peacock, and your emotional peacock. support dog. That's my yeah, um, you could bring this on a plane, and if you uh, had a letter from a uh, practicing mental health professional, uh, you could get a you could get a free ride for your emotional support animal. And this was creating all kind of problems, and, and it's going went on for years. The airlines didn't know what to do about it. And last year, they finally uh, convinced the government to make some regulations on this. And basically, in reality, there's hardly any. There's almost no more emotional support animals on planes. What there are on planes is psychiatric service animals. And that's a much higher bar. And so if you have a dog uh, and you want it uh, considered a psychiatric service animal, you have to have a, there's a couple of things. Number one, it has, to be, it has to be trained for a specific task. Secondly, you need to have a certified mental disorder on the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the official list of psychiatric illnesses. You need to be under treatment for that disorder and the animal has to be doing it. And for, finally, it has to be a dog. There's no more, there's no more oh, cats right. and stuff okay. like that, right? So, you know, you can tell, you can tell your, you know, clients come to you and say, you, you want an emotional support letter. Yeah, you can give, you can give them a letter. It makes them feel good, but it's not going to, it's not going to let them on the, on the, on the plane. On a plane at least. Um, that's right. Uh, it may get, it may get them some housing and stuff like that. And the problem with emotional support animals, by the way, uh, do you have a, do you have a pet, do you have a pet, pet Katie? I do. I have Maddie who at some point may bark either to get in or out of oh, this good. room. So yes. Well, well, let me ask you this. Do you get emotional support from any of your pets? Well, I'm enough aware of the literature to say this cautiously, <laughs> but subjectively, it does sometimes feel like that for sure. Of course. I mean, really mean, nice yeah, time. yeah, of course. I mean, I get emotional support from my cat and Tilly, and she's not the most warm and fuzzy cat in the world. <laughs> Everybody gets every pet in some ways, at least many of them are emotional support animals. So that's one of the problems is that, yeah, you can get one of those vests saying you have an emotional support animal. Hell, anybody can, every pet. 
almost every pet's an emotional support animal. So that's one of the problems. Uh, animal assisted therapy is, is different. Uh, it's it's the real deal. The term means a lot of a lot of different things. But let's just restrict it to, uh, for example, the use of. Uh, and, and, and we also know, therapy animals in some circumstances can cause short-term benefits in terms of making you know, reducing anxiety and stuff like that. I remember I was in the Charlotte airport uh, before COVID and they had an, emo uh, an emotional support right. animal in there uh, named Dylan. And uh, whenever I talked to the person who had the dog, and this was there for airline passengers, mm -hmm. in other words, so you could walk by and you could go over and talk to Dylan and pet Dylan. I stood there for like a half an hour and just watched people, beautiful golden retriever mm -hmm. and really sweet, really seemed to be enjoying its day. And people just love going over there and airports suck, you know? Yeah. And to just, you know, to sit there with Dylan and pet him a little bit and talk to him a little bit, it made him feel better. I got no problems with that. Uh, the, the problems come about claims that uh, they have, of therapeutic effects. And in reality, the data on this is really quite mixed. And some studies have shown that they have an effect, but an increasing number of studies, especially the better studies, have, have shown that oftentimes that, that, that those, are, those effects are kind of, kind of hard to document. Let me give a good example. Zoetis, which is the world's largest uh, veterinary pharmaceutical company, sponsored a, a, a clinical trial of the impact of therapy dogs on children with uh, childhood leukemia. They're undergoing treatment for childhood leukemia. And the American Humane Society uh, took this task on. And they worked so hard. They, uh, the study took five years. They, uh, you know, some, some methodological problems that they tried to overcome. It was pretty difficult to overcome some of those. Um, the study cost a cool million dollars. And at the, when the study was over, it got a lot of attention, and the media reported that the study found that these therapy dogs had a beneficial effect on the families of these kids, and to some extent, an effect on the kids. However, if you actually read the paper that it was published in, it was very clear that the therapy dogs had absolutely no effect at all. Hmm. Oh, in other goodness. words, there was no significant difference in the well-being, the psychological well-being of kids that did or did not get the therapy dogs. And these were kids who were randomly assigned to the groups and stuff like right. that. And, the, and these studies went on for, these were six months long. These were long-term, you know, therapy dog would meet with them a couple couple times a week, had absolutely no, no effect. But that's not the way the media, that's not the way the media pushed it. The study got attention on CNN. In fact, they asked me to comment on the study. They didn't use my mm. comments, um, but they asked me to comment why, on why the did, what did, Why they didn't did they use the your narrative. comments? Well, they, they used my comments, but, but they, uh, my comment was pointing out that the study showed no effects. Oh, I see why they <laughs> That's were. That's why. I said, I said that. when you look at it carefully, when you actually, and I, and I had a graph, and I, have, and, I, and I graphed out the data, you know, it showed, it showed, it, it showed no effect. That's not an, an outlier. Uh, there's a study by Megan Mueller at Tufts University, just came out, just published it. She is, she's a really good methodologist. Um, she looked at the impact of touching, and her, 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 her hypothesis was that uh, touching a therapy dog would be more beneficial to adolescents uh, under, in a stressful situation than just interacting with a therapy dog, which hmm. would be more beneficial than um, just having the, you know, having, having no dog at all. And they had a, they had a, they had a, uh, uh, a stuffed dog or something like that in there. And what they found out was that there was no effect at all. In other words, they, there was no, there was no impact at all on on uh, that that the, the therapy the therapy dogs were no better than a no better than a than a, than a stuffed dog than a, yeah. than a stuffed dog. Uh, a recent study that just came out at from the University of Chattanooga uh, UT Chattanooga found exactly the same thing, and they looked at uh, the impact of this was kids who were waiting outpatient surgery. Mm -hmm. And they had, it was a good study. They had a, they had a, they had a control group, uh, the control group, they had a control group that got nothing. They had a control group that got a, a large stuffed looking right. golden retriever. And they had a stuff that, and a, a, a stuff, you know, I mean, a real golden retriever. They found absolutely no effect of these, of the therapy dogs on, right. on anxiety and stuff like that. Uh, oh, another study. There's another study, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, Sandy Barker. She does really good work. Uh, she found therapy dogs were no more effective than a jigsaw puzzle when huh. it came to reducing pain and anxiety in kids on a psychiatric unit. So these are the studies you don't hear about in the right. media that you don't hear about in the press. So, what do you make of that? 
Well, I can I can give an example. This is when I was uh, when I was looking for a, uh, a literary agent uh, for my book, you know, ten years ago, and so I I was on the phone with a uh, uh, sort of a high profile New York literary agent. And we're talking about you know you know why I'm trying to convince her that you know she uh, she really ought to represent me in this book, and I, and 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 I said, well, you know, she said, well, tell me what tell me some things you found. I said, I said, well, you know, that there's these, all these studies, there'd be three or four or five studies now on uh, the effects of swimming with dolphins on kids with autism. And, and guess what? It doesn't work. There's no effect at all. These studies are so bad, you can't tell anything about it. And she went, uh, nobody wants to hear about that. <laughs> so part of it is the fact, the part of it, the fact is that we want to believe that, that, that animals are magic miracle workers. We want to do it. And the, the press likes that. And uh, I also think that researchers go into this field. I know a lot of people that work in this area, they're friends of mine, and they, they go into, the, they've gone into the field because they're convinced mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, interacting with the, with the therapy dog uh, actually works. And so they tend to not, they tend to not publish their negative results. Yeah. Um, a lot of the studies uh, are, are methodologically flawed. We're starting to get, we're trying to get better studies now. And as the studies have gotten better, bigger samples, better controls, what's happened is the number of studies that are producing negative results has yeah. gone up. Is there is there a particular outlet? Is there a, is there a news outlet or anything that has actually taken that tag, that taken the, the more the contrarian approach and said, look, there's really no effect, or really there it's just an avalanche of. There's a of well. What I did, what um, what what I did at one point was I uh, let's see if I had this data. I do, I do, I do. What I did was I I. Uh, I looked at a uh, hundred news reports mm -hmm. on uh, animal assisted therapy and the pet effect, which is the, the idea that, um, you know, li living with the pet's going to make you happier and healthier. So I found a hundred news reports, 75% of those reports were what I call good news reports. Mm -hmm. It was like, you know, the kids, the kids benefited, the kids benefited from that leukemia in that leukemia state from the therapy dog. Uh, only 10% reported, you know, problems related to pets, you know, pets, one of the things people don't realize is that um, 85,000 Americans, most of them old people, are taken to the hospital each year because uh, they've broken their leg because of tripping over their pets. So there was, there was stuff like that, or, or the fact that, you know, roughly 5 million people are bitten by dogs each year, uh, you know, about, you know, I've forgotten how many, you know, like 750,000 wind up in hospital emergency rooms. So there were, there were, you know, some studies like that. And then about 15% uh, were sort of balanced coverage. You know, for example, there was a really good Washington Post reporter up until COVID had a Washington Post had a full-time reporter on the human animal interaction beat, Karen Brilliard, and she was just terrific. And she went and she did a great job of saying, well, this is, this is, this this study found this and this study found this and this is some of the problems so she would interview you know she would go out and she would i think do a really good job of a really good balance job but for the most part the only news we get about the impact of human pet relationships is stuff that we like to hear so the idea is that uh, you know the, the the animals or the pets may be good therapists but then the data are mixed or negative or null in that in, in that aspect but then now you're talking about uh the well you know how much how much do animals contribute to well-being so most people would say yes of course it, it does contribute so what do the data really say regarding well let's well let's effect? so yeah um there have been oh by the way you know i mentioned that there's you know in the last year i think there's what what did i find you know 1500 studies on human animal reactions and there have now been i think there's been a i bet a thousand of those studies and, and you know, uh, you know, opposed in the last ten years have been on things like the use of therapy, you know, therapy animals. There's a huge literature, you know, in there. So, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of there's a lot of studies. Um, and what what's happened is that the pet products industry has a vested interest in convincing people that if you get a pet, you're going to be a healthier and happier person. In fact, this is called the pet effect. Mm -hmm. And they actually have a a, a basically essentially a lobby group it's it's it's, it's a, a trade group called the human animal bond research initiative and uh habri and wow. they do fund they do fund research uh sometimes and, and they have a good uh you know they, they they fund good research sometimes but they really really uh push this idea that if you get a pet 
you're going to be healthier and you're going to you're going to be happier. And this efforts have been really shockingly successful. So, for example, in a survey they did a couple of years ago, 75% of pet owners that they surveyed uh, knew about empirical research showing that pets improved human health and happiness. Mm -hmm. 95% of physicians said that they knew about, family physicians said that they knew that. And something like 75% of the family physicians said that they would prescribe getting a pet far there, far there, you know, given what they know, they'd prescribe a pet. Now, so what I did recently was I went back and I said, and, okay, and so let's say, and see, some of the claims that they make are related to psychological well-being. Right, right. So for example, Habri says, and you can go go to their website yourself and look at and look at their, you know, look at their their survey data. I mean, look at their their advertising. It says that, for example, uh, people with pets are happier, that they're less depressed and they're less lonely. So what I did was I went and I located every single study I could find on where they had measured happiness in pet owners, that they had measured depression in pet owners, and they had measured loneliness in pet owners. And what I found was really clear. The preponderances evidence was clear. And this is what it was. <laughs> happiness, I found 14 studies. How many of those studies found that pet owners were happier? This was stunning. Yeah. Any ideas? I'm going to say I'll vote, you know, I don't know, at 14, three? None. <laughs> not a single study. That is I, shocking. Not a single study. And I know why that is. Let me, let me, let, let's talk about that later. Why, why <laughs> that, that not a single study found that. And they had, a, there's, these are, by the way, these are standardized psychological scales. And in some cases, in some cases they said, well, you know, rate how happy you are scale one is it. Not a, I was shocked. Okay. Wow. What about, what about depression? I found 30 studies and there's subsequently been, I did that a couple of years ago. So, so 30 studies. Four of the 30 studies found that pet owners were less depressed. Wow. Four out yeah. of 30 studies, 18 found no difference. Four studies found they were more depressed and two produced mixed results. Okay, loneliness. Of course, pet owners are going to be less lonely, right? I found okay. 21 studies. Of those, six of them found that pet owners were less lonely. Hmm. 12 found no difference. And um, no, 12 found no difference or, or lonelier. Some couple of cases, they, they were actually lonelier. And then three produced mixed results. So the predo predominance, predominance of evidence is clear. Getting a pet is probably not going to make you a happier, less depressed, or you know, less, less, lonely, less lonely person. And the, the interesting thing to me is I'm a pet owner. I feel like my pet makes me <laughs> less lonely. I feel like my pet makes me happier. I feel like my pet, you know. You know, because we feel that way. And so there's a mismatch between right. what the, the science says, as Dr. Fauci would say, and what we <laughs> know in our hearts. I, 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 to me, to me I, I've talked with uh, some other researchers about this. And first of all, they agree with me on the pattern of the results, much to my surprise. And they're as mystified as me why there is this mismatch between between what we what we want to think about the impact of our pets mm -hmm. on our lives and the actual the actual data, I sound like the Grinch, huh? No, I mean, well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's exactly what we wanted to have you here. This, this is what you can let loose, and let me tell you, we are not going to be like CNN. We're going to we're blowing the lid right off. By the way, I'm thing. a I'm a pet owner. I'm a I'm a pet <laughs> owner, and, and my problem, my and my by the way, I think there's lots of reasons for having a pet in your life. Hmm. I I I'm yeah, okay, so I'm, I'm, a, yeah. I'm a fan. But what 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 the, the the what bugs me is I think that the pet products industry is making medical claims that are not justified. They are right. telling people if you're lonely, depressed, if you you know have high blood pressure, go out and get a pet. You'll live longer. You'll lose weight. That's just not true. And if mm -hmm. you know if they're saying getting a pet because it's going to make your you know make your life a little better somehow, and you're going to have something to do when. Yeah, you, and you probably are gonna, you know, meet more people in your neighborhood, and you know, pets are fun, you know, but but if you're gonna make medical claims, especially medical claims, the average cost of a dog right now is about ten thousand dollars a year. That was the yeah, cost it's... of only maintaining a dog. So it seems to me that if we're saying a, if we're prescribing a drug, that, right. an, an anti-depression drug, that's gonna make you, uh, you know, less depressed. Less we would want to know that it works, especially right. if it costs $10,000 a year. I appreciate you highlighting it because I, like you said, some people could do it as the Grinch if you're just kind of, you know, 
love's executioner or something and trying to say no all these things we want to believe that are so happy aren't true but the truth is what you're saying it it actually comes at a cost it's not just letting go of a belief and for people who believe that the animal is going to fix their depression and if that doesn't happen that's that can be harmful i think potentially yeah so let me let me just mention like like for example my my daughter uh katie um last year got it got a dog and uh, she and her partner are so in love with that dog and they recently spent two months with uh, my wife and i and uh uh i love i love that dog it, it, it it's made their life better there's no question about it it's mm-hmm. absolutely remarkable on the other hand uh we have uh, in our neighborhood in the last uh the last uh, six or eight months uh, I know three, three, and, the, and my neighborhood, by the way, has, has, has a bunch of old people in there that have, mm. you know, that, that, um, you know, are retired. Mm. And so their kids are not there. And so they, they and COVID, and so they've gone out and they went out and get dogs. I've had three of them call me and they want me to uh, refer them to dog trainers because they're having serious behavioral right. problems with yeah. their dogs. Yeah. And they're paying a ton of money. They're paying a hundred to $150 an hour, you know, for, for, and in some cases, it's just not working. And, they, and they've got some really good dog trainers. It's just not yeah. working. And these dogs are not making their lives better. These dogs right. are making their lives worse. Right. And, you know, and I talk to a lot of people who, you know, you know, for example, dogs are the second biggest source of conflict between neighbors. <laughs> oh, I believe that. I have to say, I, one of my favorite parts about going for a run in my neighborhood is, is seeing dogs. Like, I love seeing them. And I stop and I send pictures to my sister. My sister and I send pictures of dogs. Super charming. At the same time, at around 11 p.m., there's one dog that gets walked around, and that guy just wakes everybody up, and he's just yes. buck wild, and his owner's like, "Come on, quiet!" That, and he's like, you can see, you know, and somebody's going like, oh, "Shut the hell up!" That is the, that is that that's the source of the major problem. A friend of mine, a friend of mine, uh, moved, bought a new house in a nice part of Asheville. And lived yeah. in it for six months, and then sold his house and moved out to the country because his neighbors had his neighbors had dogs that kept him up all night. And and he yeah, after calling these you know the animal yeah. control and all that stuff and got no satisfaction, he gave up and yeah. moved. <laughs> <laughs> There's little you can do. There's very little recourse you have. So some of it's the the dog, right? That it sounds like. I mean, I I feel like I got lucky with the dog that mm-hmm. that we have oh, because man. she has a very she's quiet most of the time. She's pretty easy. She doesn't destroy mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. And so it sounds like with your daughter and her partner, like they they have a dog that is nice and that that can affect people Wonderful differently. Dog. Wonderful so dog. With, with the service dogs. They must be really selective about who the animals. How does that mm-hmm. impact how effective they are? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great. Well, yes, yeah. And let's talk about really serious service dogs. Let's talk about things like uh, guide dogs, and uh, really highly trained, um, highly trained service dogs. So, so for example, one of the one of the uh, one of the things that's going on is the use of giving psychiatric service uh, dogs to veterans with PTSD. And there's some studies that shows that that uh, has has some positive effect. It costs twenty five to thirty thousand dollars to train one of those dogs. Wow, that's one reason why the why the VA was very reluctant to to to, to start. You know, given the number of veterans with PTSD, mm-hmm. and we're talking you know twenty five or thirty thousand dollars per dog. Mm-hmm. That's that's a lot of that's a, that's a lot that's a lot of money. Um, and there's at least a fifty percent dropout rate in dog training programs not mm. every dog this is a classic right, case right. of environment you know of gene of gene environment, gene environment interaction yeah. you know yeah. and uh, so one of the most interesting one of the, one of the things that, that in the new version of my book um, that I noticed that I noted in writing the news version of the book is some of the best research I think in psychology right now is, is in canine science it's attracted some really great young researchers and they're doing stuff like a, a genetic analyses to see like which you know can we identify which uh which genes which pat which which right. which genes um which which brain structure do we can we put a dog in an mri can we look at can we can we can we will that help us pick the puppies that have the best chance of of, of succeeding in obedience mm-hmm. training or being a bomb sniffing dog 
you know, you want to, you want different things in a bomb sniffing dog than you do in, or a drug sniffing dog than you want in a, a guide dog for the blind or a cadaver dog. So, so there's some really great, great work going on in, in that area, but it's, but a, a, a real, a really seriously trained service dog is a very, it's a very intense relationship and it costs a ton of money. What were the results of that study? The VA, <laughs> There, there wasn't there wasn't there wasn't one VA study. There were about three VA studies mm -hmm. that I know of. And the first two of them were just disasters. And they wound up the VA spent eight, I think it was $18 million Jeez. on that study. And I got the final report of it and read mm -hmm. and read the study. Um, what they what they found, uh, what they what they found was that the dog did reduce uh, the symptoms, significantly reduce the symptoms of PTSD. Mm. The, dogs, uh, the dogs reduced suicidal ideation. Some of the news reports said that the dogs reduced suicidal behaviors and suicides. That was not true because they didn't have any suicides in either the, fortunately, the control group or the experimental group. The study was pretty well done. Um, there, at the same time that the, that the VA was doing their study, a group at Purdue uh, with Mag Maggie O'Hare's group at Purdue, Margarita, was also doing a study uh, with service dogs, and, and she obtained similarly positive results. Uh, she did not have the, uh, the problems that the, VA, that, the, that the VA had with, with, with her study. So they're now working with the VA to look at a feasibility study. The budget for the feasibility study is $12 million. Holy crap. So we are talking, and and by the way, when, when I looked when I looked at the numbers, when I looked at the effect sizes, yeah, when I looked at the effect sizes, um, I was not convinced that, that that giving every veteran that wants a PTSD dog, uh -huh. uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure I'm not sure it was warranted by that, and there was also some concern along the same lines by an oversight committee of the uh, National Academy of Sciences that looked the study over. Mm -hmm. So it, the, the VA the VA study is an interesting is an interesting thing. However, dog lovers have a big a big uh, lobby in Congress, right. and so what happened was as soon as as soon as that study came out, Congress basically passed a law saying we're going to make this happen. Yeah. So probably because we'll, we'll see how it plays yeah. out. These are service dogs. These are not pets. So the pets the, these right. are dogs that have to be that are trained to do a specific service. So for example, with PTSD, the dog senses that the uh, that the veteran is uh, getting ready to have some sort of, uh, you know, flashback episode, yeah. flashback episode, something like that. Then the dog would warn them, or maybe get them, you know, push them out of a crowd, or something, mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that's the sorts of things that those dogs are going to be trained to do. Are trained to do. Yeah, very highly trained. So the the effect sizes did not seem that large, even though there were statistically well, significant. I, yes, I, I, you know, I'm not. I'm not a statistician and I'm not a, um, I don't, you know, the, the study did, was reviewed by a panel by the National Academy of Sciences. I read, I read the letter that they wrote to the, to the uh, thing. So I'm not, hmm. I don't want to, you know, go on. I don't want to say, no, they shouldn't be doing this, but, you know, I, I thought the, the effect sizes were, you know. Right, so that's and, kind of contradictory, right? So it, maybe it's, uh, so some of the data are negative in the negative direction. There's just really there. And some of them really well controlled with animals that are very well trained and with you know thirty five thousand dollars per animal, then you might be able to eke out an effect. But the question then becomes: Is the the amount of buck that you're putting for that bang worth the effort? Basically? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. but when you're talking, okay, so here you have, okay, so you've got you've got uh, here, look look at your interest groups here. You've got right. veterans, you've got people with PTSD. Animals, yeah. And you got dogs, yeah. so that's you, you, you might know, as well say what, what I hate America. Of, <laughs> yeah, you might as well say I hate America if you, if you oppose the funding for that. It's like there's just no chance. Yeah, you're going, yeah, yeah. You're going to get any traction. That's, yeah. uh, that's a tough one. Tell by the way, by the way, for for your for your listeners, yes. Uh, what an effect size? There, there's two different ways right. of measuring of of looking what whether or not uh, something works, whether or not your experiment works, or whether or not whatever study is works. And one is statistical significance. And more or less, that's the chances that if you repeated the study, you would get the same results. Effect size is whether or not it really is important or not. 
In other words, is the difference between your control group and your experimental group, is it, is it big enough that it makes a clinical difference? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In this case, it, clinical difference would, I think, be the right measure, correct? You know, mm -hmm. and um, does, it, does it really result in fewer suicides? You know, and, and how many? Is it going to be one less suicide in a, mm -hmm. you know, in a hundred thousand? Mm -hmm. Is it going to be one in 10? Mm -hmm. You know, so that would be that would be a sort of a measure. I, I'm glad that you explained that. And I think the, the other piece of it is that if there are limited funds that are going to go into helping veterans with PTSD, then looking at effect sizes and different types of interventions, it seems really important to think about what is the best way to help the largest number of people, right? It's not about not wanting to help people or not wanting to right. give them um, a dog that could be a great service dog. It really is. There are funds that are controlled and limited to what they go to, and how can we actually best help people with PTSD? No, I think I think that's exactly right. And you know, and you know, when when we talk about medicine and we talk about money, all kind of things go. In. And I would be completely uh, comfortable with going on record as saying there, uh, the Federal Drug Administration, for example, recently approved and. Alzheimer's drug that was incredibly expensive that had no, had that will that has no effect at all and will have no effect and I don't know who got paid off on that <laughs> I'm not saying anybody got paid off but some my, my uh, guess is there might be somebody from the FDA day that might be might be getting a job with a pharmaceutical company mm -hmm. you know in the next year or so and it's also powerful as what you what you mentioned regarding the powerful lobby some people want it to be true is what if you know, they say, if, okay, so maybe if the effect size is minuscule, but if that means that one person with Alzheimer's gets to have a, a significant reduction and it's your relative, then you want that extra edge. And who's going to say no, right? That's, that, that's, that's a difficult hard to- that's, exa that, that's exactly correct. And I've, I've thought about that a lot with, uh, well, for example, mask wearing and COVID and things right. like that. You get, this, you, get the same, you get the same sorts of, you get the same issue if your vaccinations, it's like, the public and a, and a public health person, an epidemiologist is going to think about those issues differently than an individual doctor or you, if it's you, you or your, a family member. Yeah. So, it would, you know, so from a public health perspective, it's like, you know, how do you prevent the most, how, how do you increase happiness and decrease suffering and death? And uh, that's different than the impacting the individual. I, I think it's a hugely important issue. Right. Yeah, the the other part that I was that because I when I read your book, um, one of the things, and I can't, I don't know if you expanded more on your on on, the, on this edition, but also um, on your columns, you talked about it started moving away, well, or going back to the larger ethics of the role that animals play in our lives, and so one of the latest columns that you've talked about was uh, regarding personhood and animals, right? And so when you talk about these issues, one of the things that you you said is that all oh, people are like, you know, well, this this animal is going to increase my well-being. So what some people are saying is like, well, should we be using animals for our well-being? Is this is this something that is ethical to do or not? Yeah, the issue, the issue of there's a uh, if, if you if you ask the average person, is if, it, there's a lot of studies that have done this. Um, is your, do you consider your pet a member of your family? Let's talk about dogs. Right. You consider your dogs a member of your family. Depending on the study, somewhere between 75 and 95% of people will say, will say yes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, and I, and my, my wife, my wife and I got into, uh, we had a discussion recently and it was over animal personhood. <laughs> Perspective exchange. It was, it was, yeah, and it was over animal personhood. <laughs> the question is, are, are the, the New York Times, the New York Times uh, uh, had an op-ed by Greg Burns, a, an excellent research from Emory University who does MRIs on dog, dog, dogs' brains. This work is just terrific. He had an article in the New York Times and the, the title was, Dogs Are People Too. Mm, well, mm -hmm. well, okay. So if dogs are people, what right do we have right. to uh, cut their testicles off because we don't want them to reproduce, right. deprive right. them? The uh, we wouldn't we wouldn't do that to you know your dog's a member of your family, but you wouldn't do that to a, a human member of your family. You know, you know what right do we have? You know, when I was a kid, when I lived out in the country, you know, our dogs basically ran around, right. You know, Pretty much, and it was safe and, and ran around. But now, 
I never see a dog that's not on a leash. Mm-hmm. You you wouldn't make your kid every time every time you went out every time you wanted to go out and play you'd put him you'd put him you'd put him on, on a, a leash, leash you know. Um, so we that's right. So so in other words, so in other words, we have these creatures that we we you know we we sometimes consider persons and family or stuff like that, but yet we control every member, every every everything right. in their lives. And uh, my friend, the researcher Leslie Irvine, she's she's an animal lover. She has dogs. She's she's conflicted about this. And in uh, in one of her articles, she com- she compares uh, owning a pet to slavery. Right. You know, I've been thinking about this more and more. And, and I and I've it's to me it's a personal issue because I have a cat, uh, my mm-hmm. cat Tilly, and my cat Tilly lives basically the way cats have lived with humans for for most of human history. That is, she hangs around the house. She comes in when she wants to. Um, you know, I feed. Her, but she also feeds herself. She goes out and she hunts and she sometimes kills small birds and mammals and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. you know, I feel I feel guilty. I feel so, of itself. Yeah, that's another problem. Yeah. So yeah. I feel I feel I feel guilty about I feel guilty about that. I, I know the literature is saying that you know pet cats in the United States and Canada kill somewhere between you know five and and billion animals a year that they've endangered they've wiped birds. out endangered species and in New Zealand and and uh, and, uh, and 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 Australia, but on the other hand, um, <laughs> but it's so cute you know, for, for me to. It's not just, I don't. On the other hand, if if I'm going to recognize her autonomy, if I'm going to consider her uh, a creature that that's sentient, you know, that has a sense of herself, that experiences pleasure and pain and all that, what right do I have to Im- imprison her in my, you know, in, in a house, which is what increasing numbers of people are doing in in, in the United States? So. So I've, you know, I've really, I've really thought a lot about this cat. And I, I, I consulted uh, for a chapter I was writing on the ethics of keeping of, uh, of keeping a cat for a pet. I consulted uh, Jessica Pierce, a, uh, a bioethicist, and Jessica wrote me back pithily. She said, "I think there is no morally clean way to live with the cat. <laughs> <laughs> you're screwed either way. You're either you're you're screwed either way. You either you know you you let your you let your your little miniature killer go outside and do her thing, <laughs> or you or you force them to be imprisoned in the like a yeah, you know, like as if you it's like your personal little pet. I mean, like that's it. That's literally yeah. the idea. That and Tilly, Tilly, the, and the thing about you know most people like their cats because they're you know they're they're cute mm-hmm. and they they purr and they sit on they sit on your chest and paw and stuff like that. Tilly's a little like she looks like a little black panther. You know, she does. And I like her. I like living. I like having a wild thing in my house. Because he looks like a wee panda. You know? Yeah. Right. I like, I, 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 I want to respect her wildness. Right. And, and I know that that's a morally bankrupt <laughs> moral view. And I've increasingly, I've, I've increasingly come to uh, look at the common, I think that meat, eating animals and keeping them for pets Right. Has, has the same moral justification. And uh, the reason why we eat animals really boils down to, I think, one real reason, and that is that they taste tasty. good. They're so tasty. They're so tasty, <laughs> right. So so why do we, so they make us happy. They bring us pleasure. Right. Why do we keep pets in our lives? Because they bring us pleasure. Yeah. And so to me, the ethics of eating animals and the ethics, the ethical problems associated with eating animals and the ethical associated with pet keeping is they're different, but they've, they've got some common, common, they got some common issues. So did Katie, out of curiosity, when 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 your daughter Katie was debating getting getting a new animal, did she go through this debate regarding whether all oh, the ethics of it and or did she just had just want a pet and just got it? Or her, no, her her no, her big debate. No, she she uh, her big debate. Uh, which she resolved, and she wrote a series. Uh, Katie uh, is, a, is a journalist, and she wrote a series of blogs. Uh, her, her, her dog's name is Moose, mm-hmm. and she wrote a series of, I think, three blogs called the Moose Chronicles, <laughs> and it was her decision and how she came to the decision uh-huh. of what to do with Moose's balls, <laughs> and the politically correct thing to do is to have your dog's balls removed, so to spay and neuter. It turns out that it's not. It turns out that it's not that simple. It turns out that there are negative health consequences mm. to uh, spay, spay and neuter. For example, with the uh, golden retrievers, um, and also, gosh, I forgot what the other breed was. Um, they are more likely to get uh, certain types of cancers and also bone oh, disorders. Boy. So uh, the person that's done this research is uh, Ben Hart, primarily at UC Davis. 
And um, yeah, he's done a lot of work on like what types of, you know, what breeds are especially prone to medical problems associated with, cast with castration. So it's a real, it's a real issue. And so she, so she did a lot of research on it. And so she wrote, so if you're interested in finding out about, uh, you know, the sort of we'll ethical problems yeah. associated, look up, look up the moose. Is it called the Moose Chronicles? I, I think it's called Moose Chronicles. Uh, we'll have um, to look it up. Katie Herzog. We'll link, we'll link her, we'll link her, yeah. her, her coverage, her, her, yeah. her out loud moral reasoning. Yeah. About, about keeping well, she did a lot of research. She interviewed, yeah. she interviewed a lot of, you know, she's a journalist. So, you know, she, she interviewed a lot of experts and, and uh, came to the conclusion that um, she did not want to get moose, moose castrated. And by the way, up until very recently, mm -hmm. it was against the law. And I think it was Denmark and maybe Sweden as well to castrate a dog, unless it was for a medical reason. In fact, I remember oh. a, a, a veterinarian from Denmark told me one time that they had a word in German uh, and castration of a dog, the word that they used for castration was, was meant literally stealing the dog's soul. <laughs> <laughs> they have such a way with words. Well, by the way, and by the way, they do not have a pet overpopulation problem there in the, in the Scandinavian countries. Yeah. Is it just because they're just more careful about making sure that they're, they're more, they're more careful. They're, they're more careful. They also, it's also, there's, there's a lot of laws. Uh, mm -hmm. protecting the rights of, of animals. And so, for example, if you can't, if you can't, uh, 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 Clive Wynn, a dog researcher, really good dog researcher, in his book, Dog is Love, he argues that if you have to leave your dog alone for more than six hours a day, you should not have a dog. And that was the law, in, and I think it still is in Sweden, that your dog, you're yeah. not supposed to leave your dog alone for more than six hours a day. Wow. Yeah, there's, that's, that, that is, you know, the differences between you know, the different cultural differences between mm -hmm. Nordic countries. I mean, because there's no way, I mean, we can barely pass any laws regarding gun ownership, right, right. much less is going to be regarding pet ownership, for sure. That's so interesting. And so, and so you're thinking it's morally objection, very morally objectionable to, to maintain pets. Um, are you well? Well, you, well, no. Yeah. Let's not, let's not say quite yeah. that quite that strongly. I am no, conflicted. I am. I am. I am. I am conflicted over that. <laughs> and um, I, I think if you logically look at at if you logically look at pet ownership, it's more for us than it is for them. Right. And um, the question is, are there ethical implications of that? So, right. Yeah. That's that's what I think. Because I, I keep thinking as young. So, for example, there's data showing that younger people are delaying or not having kids because they're concerned about the environmental impact it has. And so I'm wondering how much people are saying, well, you know, I'm not going to have a kid, but I can have a cat or I can have a dog. And I'm like, I'm not sure how much better of an ethical choice that is, because that's still going to have a huge effect on the environment. Like the, the food industry for pets relies on industrialization of that and the amount of stuff that you get, especially a dog in industrialized world takes a lot of resources. So I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to see if pet ownership is increasing the U.S. as child uh, bearing is going down or do you know, have any data on that or? Yeah, that that's that's become a hot issue. James Serpel at University of Pennsylvania has been looking at that, and uh, he gave a, a talk last year that was quite interesting. And he looked, and he it was on the environmental cost of of owning a pet, and mm -hmm. um, and yeah, he sort of he sort of you know, raised that issue, and it's not trivial. the the the, the issue of as pet ownership going up is actually a pretty interesting issue, and if you believe the uh, pet. It sounds like a simple. It sounds like a. It sounds like something simple. However, um, Karen Brilliard, the uh, the reporter at the Washington Post, uh, who was their human animal uh, interaction person, she uh, did a did a piece a couple of years ago where she compared the estimates of dog of, of pet ownership, and uh, the, the estimates. Uh, from, I think it was three groups, the American Veterinary Medical Association, which is mm -hmm. the veterinary medical, the American Pet Products Association, which is the pet products industry, the census data, and then a, and then a private uh, company that, that does a, uh, you know, market marketing, you know, mm -hmm. well, established marketing, and their data was all over the place. For example, as I recall, the American Pet Products Association, of course, they've got a vested interest in making and amping up pet. Sure. They said something like 65% of American homes included a, included a pet. The AVAMA, AVAMA said it was like 55%. The census said it was like 40%. Wow. As, as did the, so, and, and Andrew Rowan, 
Andrew Rowan is who is the person who knows more about pet demographics than probably anybody. He argues, and I think he's right. He argues that if you look at if you look over time, that pet ownership in the United States has actually remained incredibly stable over the last 30 years, mm -hmm. that there has not been a big increase, increase. In, in, in pet yeah. ownership. So what we what we do know what we what we do know is that people that uh, there's a, there's a relationship between uh, having a kid and having pets. So the people are most likely to have pets. Uh, they have a demographic profile. They're more likely yeah. to be white. Um, you know, uh, they're they're more likely to be younger, you know, younger rather than uh -huh. rather than rather than an old an older yeah. person. Um, but they're also more likely to have kids in the home. Yeah. However, if you have kids in the home, you're less likely to be attached to your pet. So people people that have kids, there's a lot of people that go get go get a dog, you know, because they think it's good for their kids. There's, by the way, there's almost no good evidence that dogs are actually good for kids, you know, in terms of empirical stuff. But, you know, that, I'll share that with my children the next time they ask for a second dog. Well, how, well, how, old, how, how, old, how old are your children? They're 8 and 11. They're 8 and 11. Okay, I got news for you. So probably, this is my prediction. How, how, how old is the 11-year-old? 11, right? Is it a, is it a, it, <laughs> well, my guess is that when in two years that what's going to happen is that is going to care less about the family. <laughs> there you go. I call this the Puff the Magic Dragon effect. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> as kids grow up, they, they tend to some really good data on this. I love these, this study. They, they looked at the how attached kids were and how much time they played with the family pet. And they found that once they got to be about 12 or 13, right about teenagehood, mm -hmm is that their interest in playing with their pets and probably their moms, unfortunately, as well. Oh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> but you'll have Maddie. You and Maddie will have each other. Too. That's right. We can console each other during that <laughs> difficult time. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That, so is there anything um, that has been that in the past 80 years that you've maybe had in your, in your first book that surprised you? There's been a big change. You're like, holy crap, that has... Yeah. Surprised or is interesting in, compared to the second edition. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a couple of things. Um, probably the probably the the biggest one, and I should have I should have known this, but I just I don't know what I was going through my head. Is that I was it had to do with meat consumption, mm. and I argue in the first edition of the book that humans are natural meat eaters, which I think they are. Um, and I, you know, I point out the ethical problems of eating meat and you know, how hard it is to give it up. The fact that most vegetarians go back to eating meat and, and you know, things like that. But I was, I was unaware of the enormous national differences in meat consumption. So even though there's clearly some sort of a biological basis for our desire to eat animals, the range, the range of meat per capita meat consumption by country varies all the way from about 240 pounds of meat per person in places like the United States and in Hong Kong and, um, and, and you know, a few other places, all the way down to about 10 pounds per person per year. My. And so in the United States is at one extreme and places like India and Ethiopia are at the other extreme. Right. But, but even if you look, compare, for example, the United States versus Europe, you find just enormous differences in in meat consumption. And so I, I think generally speaking, I has, as I've gotten older and, and, and you know, learned, learned more and, and studied more in this area, I've become more impressed that human nature, are, that our interactions with animals are much more determined by culture than they are by biology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's one thing to say that, you know, there's a thing called biophilia and everybody, you know, loves right. animals and stuff like that. It's just not true. You know, some places they love dogs, some places they don't love dogs, some places they love dogs, some places they eat dogs, they love to eat dogs. <laughs> and in Africa, at least historically, some of those places where they loved, where they, you know, had dogs as pets and where they ate them were almost right next to each other. You'd have different tribes in one. And so, and so I, I think I, I think I've really come to appreciate, um, um, culture more. The, the degree that the, the degree that human behavior is is, is is flexible yeah one of the things that i've been i was trying to kind of tongue in cheek trying to get my partner to to uh to eat is cricket flour 
And so I'm looking into like, you know, in thinking about how, how the attitudes regarding to what is considered food. And that's one of the central tenets of your book is, you know, what, what are the animals that we consider yeah. acceptable to eat or to yeah. as pets yeah. or to just be disgusted yeah. by. Yeah. And there's been a shift. There's a, a concerted shift and certainly among environmentalists. And I have had cricket, fl- cricket brownies and, and they were good. <laughs> I don't know if it was just because I didn't. I've eaten cricket tacos. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They flowered. I've had the, the, the crickets. Well, and in Colombia, I used to eat ants. But where did you have cricket tacos? A Mexican restaurant in Washington, D.C. Uh, yeah, we went there specifically because I knew they served crickets. I wanted to yeah. Eat. yeah. It was a very yeah. towny Mexican restaurant. The nice thing about crickets is that, uh, like, you can eat, eat crickets. But the other thing is there's one study, one of my favorite studies in anthrozoology uh, had to do with crickets as, uh, as uh, therapy animals. And mm. uh, it was a study that was done in Korea. And what they did was they had people in an old folks' home and they gave each of these each of these people a uh, an aquarium, a little terrarium with five crickets, and their job was to take care of these crickets. And they found, compared to the control, it was a very well controlled study because you can control, control everything. Is that the group that got the crickets? You know, crickets had better well being; they were happier, and all this stuff was depressed in the other group. So, so, so crickets are good because you can eat them. Oh, and the other thing about crickets is that if they die, you they just give them another <laughs> cricket. You know? Right. Yeah, crickets are good. Well, oh my God, this is this is flowing incredibly well. Because that reminds me <laughs> of the the, light, the last comment. One of the reasons we decided to have you was one of the, you sent us a question regarding um, whether prolonged grief would play a role for people. So, like, I imagine that if if a cricket dies, it's a little bit easier to just no, find just... another cricket compared to you know if you're yeah they didn't yeah. If your if your puppy died or you know the yeah. puppy you had for fifteen years, yeah, then you, you sent us a question regarding uh, prolonged grief. Maybe you can talk about the impetus for that column and and yeah, where you landed on on the idea that uh, insurance should cover or prolonged grief should extend to the death of uh, of a pet. Yeah, let me just just mention that I got a occasionally I get emails from you know people that read my blog or that read my book, and you know, I'm always glad to hear from hear from readers. And I got an email uh, in response to, uh, I know what it was. It was on the column, it's like today, uh, blog post I wrote on happiness and do pets make people happy. And I, that data that I mentioned about most studies have not found that's the case. And I had a reason why I thought that might be the case that pets don't really make people happier in the long run. And the, uh, Doug wrote me and he said that, you know, he basically agreed with me, appreciate my column. He said, but um, he wrote a very long uh very long letter which i which i published in that blog it was about his grief when his dog when his dog died and it was mm-hmm. it was really deep and it was prolonged and it was it had been uh gosh i think it was six months he said he cried every day hmm. and he said he did wouldn't want to wish this on anyone he was he was absolutely devastated and i and i and i realized that you know i i had had uh, a colleague that that had a similar uh extreme grief to the death of of uh of her of her of her dog one of her dogs i just last week got a got another message from a from a researcher who told me that who had seen a column of mine in fact it was the column you're talking about who told me that yeah when her dog died that she um spent you know six months later she was undergoing therapy is associated mm-hmm. with the so i so i looked at the literature on uh what at the time was was called complicated grief and complicated grief is simply a term that was used uh, to describe uh, long-term grief that doesn't seem to go away. You know, if you lose a friend, if you lose a spouse, everybody feels grief, everybody feels sad, everybody feels depressed. But usually six months or a year later, people people start coming out of it. And so, but people don't come out of it and it gets pathological. So it turns out that this this complicated grief uh, occurs as best I can see in about about 10% of people. And then I found some, some, some studies that had been done with pets and occurs in about four percent, about four percent of pet owners. Hmm. And then I started coming across this another term. And it was called prolonged grief disorder. And I was unclear about what the relationship between prolonged grief disorder was and complicated grief. And it turns out that last year, the American Psychiatric Association, for the first time, recognized uh, pathological grief as a form of mental illness, and they put it officially in the diagnostic and in the manual, but they they changed the name from complicated grief to prolonged grief disorder. So those are basically the same, the same, the same thing. Now the thing about it is that the American Psychiatric Association's definition says 
prolonged grief disorder, I don't have the exact wording here, but it's, it's prolonged grief disorder is basically pathological grief in response to the death of a person. And I thought about that. I, did, I thought, well, wait a minute. What about this 4% of people or so who experience long-term grief, really devastating grief associated with the death of a pet? And, uh, and so I just, I just sort of raised the question, you know, um, you, you know, it raises the question of, well, what is a person that we briefly talked about before? Um, but it also raises the question, you know, should do, you know, people that are experiencing the grief from a, over the death of a pet, you know, should they be able to, uh, you know, go to a therapist and, 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 and get treat get treated for that and then that be mm-hmm. covered under insurance and, and things like that. Katie, what, what do you, what's your take? My take is that I, I think that there are complicated questions with regard to the criteria. However, anyone who is struggling after the loss of a pet deserves care and help getting through that yeah. regardless. And so I think we run into this, whether it's diagnosed specifically with a prolonged grief disorder or an adjustment disorder with depressment or whatever it might be, I would want them to have access to care. Yeah, that, that's, sort of, that's sort of how I felt about it, you know, and yeah. And I, I, I did not know what the, what the, you know, what the financial implications were in terms of, you know, pay, you know, getting, you know, getting things. I, I know that, I know that, that all I know about that is it gets really complicated when you're talking about reimbursement of therapists. But I don't see why a, a, a therapist shouldn't be able to get reimbursed if they're helping somebody get over the grief of grief for the death of a pet. But I, I think the question that you brought up is really interesting because I'm wondering if, I don't know, if, um, I wonder if that's kind of the next frontier for the animal human interaction field is, it seems like a lot of it's going to be regarding this issue of personhood for animals. Yeah, yeah I think that's, I think that is going to be a hot issue and it's part, and it's going to become a hot issue real soon. And um, the, the reason, the, the reason is this, um, but the question mm-hmm. is, what is an animal? And right now animals are considered property. So you have two categories, basically. You have people, you have persons, and you have categories. So, you know, this cup is is is, pro- is property. You know, mm-hmm. my car is property. You know, my wife is not is not property. My kids are not property. You know, in the United States, at one point, you could buy and sell people. Right. They were yeah. property, um, and that wasn't all that long ago, 150 right. years ago. Um, so, but what, so the question is, what about what about animals? And let's first of all talk about what animals and what the legal case is. There's a there's a group. Uh, Stephen Weiss is the is the major animal rights lawyer who's been taking this through the court system. Um, and um, the initial the initial animals that went before the courts were uh, two chimpanzees, mm. and the courts ruled. Uh, the judge in that case, I've forgotten what the superior court or whatever in New York, but I can't remember the level of this was. He says, he said, basically, I, I really, I really wanted to, 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 to decide for you. This was a case of two animals, of two chimpanzees that were being, had been kept in research labs. And um, they wanted to, they were sort of retired, but they wanted to put them on a chimpanzee sanctuary, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, he said, I really, wanted, I really wanted to, but right now the law is such that I can't decide for you. Well, Weiss has a new case and it's going before the courts this year and the next couple of months. And it has to do with an elephant in the Bronx Zoo, this lone elephant in the mm. Bronx Zoo. And the, and the elephant has a greatest name for me in this case, the elephant's name is Happy. Oh. And this is the saddest oh, elephant. Is so this is oh, the saddest elephant oh, you ever no. saw. Oh. <laughs> you, see a, you, see a, you see a picture of Happy and you say like, oh my God, this is the saddest <laughs> thing. And, and, and so recently uh, there's been two excellent articles written about the case. Uh, one was by Jill Lepore who's a, uh, normally writes for the New Yorker, but this appeared in the Atlantic. Mm. And then uh, there was a major issue in the New Yorker by, gosh, I've forgotten the guy's name, uh, about this case. And they laid out, and they laid out the legal grounds for this. And they, mm-hmm. you know, they talked to all, all the experts and, and, and stuff like that. And, and it's going to be an interesting case uh, because I think, and the question is, is for the purpose of law, an animal, a person, mm-hmm. and like I, it, 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 the law is different than common sense here. I've, I've been to a couple of animal law conferences, mm-hmm. and so example, for example, in India, the Ganges River has been declared a person, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and famously in the United States, and Citizens United, 
corporations for the purpose right. of law were to declare a person. So if a corporation could be a person, right. if a, in, in New Zealand, there are forests that have been declared persons right. for reasons of law. So it might well be that, that the time has now come to make the case that some animals, at least, mm -hmm. are, are entitled to certain rights under the law that, that are normally restricted to persons. So I think this is going to be a, a big deal. And, and I do wonder what the, uh, you know, what, what is the standard you're going to use? Like, you know, what, what level of moral or cognition are you going to have? That today? then becomes the property is where yeah. you draw the line. And uh, Wise actually wrote one of, the, one of the better books on this. And it was called, I think, Drawing the Line. And he and what he what he argued what he argued in that book is that we can that you know cognitive ethology is advanced enough now that researchers can sort of determine you know you know what's you know what animal has more mental capacities let's say uh, an African gray parrot mm -hmm, or a mm -hmm. dog and it might well be that the African gray parrot is smarter than your typical dog right you know, so yeah that is a good one that so is so that's why i study this stuff Leo. that's why <laughs> katie that's why this is the, the best area in the world to it be a researcher pretty interesting no shortage yeah. of interesting and controversial no topics, shortage but... no shortage of good stuff and the thing that i like about talking to you about it is first of all how thorough you are in investigating very honestly what are all the studies out there and what do they say and the nuance in it while talking about that you personally you love your pet and you have those feelings, but you also recognize right. some of these other things. And I think that's, yeah. I don't think that's that common. I think we convince ourselves of a lot of things. So to be able to actually hold those different pieces mm -hmm. there, it, it makes it really cool to talk to you about it. So I appreciate you well, sharing Well, thanks. That. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, what I, what I tried to do is keep, you know, sort of a moral wimp. I, you know, when I look at these issues, I try and do as objectively as I can. And I, and I generally don't take sides, which which is not true when I, when I deal with human ethical issues. I'm just the opposite. You know, I'm, a, I'm an extremist in many ways, but with this animal stuff, I'm not. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having. Is there anything else that we forgot to ask, or anything else you want to? Uh, no, I just put a plug in for. Uh, there is a new edition of my book out. Uh, yeah. If you bought the old one, uh, you don't need to buy the new one. But if you... <laughs> too late, Hal. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, I need to. But it's still. But uh, if you haven't if you haven't read the first one, the new the yeah, the new edition has got has got newer stuff. It's it's I, I tried to keep the basic framework, and then I've also got this blog that I write for Psychology Today, Animals and Us. So it's free. Books you have to pay for the book, just, and it's very go, good. And we'll just, link just to go just see the vlog. Just go to the vlog. Don't, don't buy my book. <laughs> you can do what you can do what I did, which is send send the book as a gift to a friend. But instead oh, of sending the actual book, I send the audio tape, which it's apparently good. is inaccessible to any human <laughs> with 21st it's good. century. It's good. 21st but I appreciate the sentiment. I mean, the friend did. Yeah. <laughs> Very kind. <laughs> That's right. So, so, so if you still have a CD player from the 2000s, <laughs> you'll get it. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah, it's available on audiobooks. I think. It is available on audiobooks, yeah, but only, you, only audiobooks. we have an 8-track. <laughs> no, it's available. You can get it on audiobooks. Okay, that is it for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave us a review on the Apple Store or send us a tweet at underscore psychodrama underscore. Thank you. Psychodrama is a production of Bumblebee Productions. Bumblebee, Bumblebee, Bumblebee!